Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 2, 13 through 22. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came out and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of God to us. Awesome. You can take it with you. Yeah. Hey, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Happy Memorial Day. You could have gone to the lake, and you decided to come here. So (laughs) thanks for being with us today. We've not had the chance to meet. My name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. And uh, we're going to continue on in our, our series on the Gospel of Mark. What we love to do as a church is just take books of the Bible, kind of work our way through. So we're in week seven of this gospel and uh, excited just to jump in. If you find yourself kind of back in church after being gone for a while and you've got questions or you've got stuff that you need to process or things that you're curious about, nothing is off limits. You can ask whatever you want. We're just glad that you're with us today. So let me take a second. Let me pray for us. And, uh, and then we'll jump into Mark chapter two. So Father, I wanna thank you for my friends today. I wanna thank you for what it means to be able to gather and to sit under your word. And I pray today that you would shape us and you would form us uh, to be less and less like what the world is offering and more and more to live into the life that you've called us to. And I pray today, God, that you would, and the ways that we need to be corrected and adjusted and taught and helped and comforted, would you do all of that? for the ways that we've got questions, for the ways that we feel distant from you or distant from other people. God, there's there's a million ways that we need your help and we need your grace today. And we're praying that by the power of the spirit that you would come and you would meet us. So be with me as I preach and teach. I pray that it would be helpful. And uh, if there's anything that's not helpful, let it be quickly and easily forgotten. Pray these things in your name, amen. Um, So my wife and I, we love to eat food and we love to cook food. And I, I, I thought like this was everybody. Everybody, you know, treats food the way that we do. But apparently, that's not the case. Like some people willingly choose to go to Applebee's, and you know, 
that's your deal. Like you had, you had money to spend and you went to Applebee's and I don't understand you. And if you happen to work at Applebee's, I am profoundly sorry. And you can talk to me after the service. But like we love good food. And uh, honestly, it's such a level of love for us at this point that we base our vacations on what type of restaurants that we want to go to. Like it's at that level. And uh, we're, we're in the process of planning out a three-month sabbatical. Uh, we give all of our pastors on their seventh year of ministry at Frontline, we give them time away to just kind of be with family and to play and to rest and to uh, kind of remember why it is that they're in ministry, that it's not, uh, you know, it's really to like re- renew your first love with your family and with Jesus. And so we're in the middle of planning that. And I kid you not, the factor of food has been like one of the top three considerations for where we're going to go on our sabbatical. It's that serious. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, the stand-up comedian, he said this, in the end, that's what most vacations are, just you eating in a place that you've never been. It's like, yeah, that's it. Nailed it. That's our vacation. And for me, our, our love for food, my love for food especially, and to cook good food took off in 2015. I was on vacation with uh, Pastor Josh Curry and his wife Nancy and my wife and a few other people. And uh, he brought me into the kitchen and he's like, here, chop this garlic. And I didn't even know how to chop garlic. I didn't know how to peel garlic. And he's like, here, devein the shrimp and fire up the grill and do all these things. And I was, for the first time, doing stuff that I'd never been able to do or hadn't known how to do. And he was showing me And I left that trip thinking, like, I love to do this. Now I spend my money to buy cookbooks. And if you saw my Netflix queue, like, it's filled with cooking shows. Like, it has taken off. I love to smoke meat. I love to cook. It's one of my favorite hobbies. And that's half the reason why, excuse me, that's half the reason why I'm excited that I have tomorrow off is because I'm going to spend some of the day smoking meat. Now, some of you are like, why are we talking about this in church? We're supposed to talk about spiritual things. And what I want to say to you is actually the idea of food and the idea of drink is profoundly spiritual. It's it's really hard to separate one of the main themes in Scripture and certainly one of the main themes of the life and ministry of Jesus if you were to take out the idea of feasting and eating good food. This is one of the things that we see again and again in the life of Jesus. And actually, in our text today... We're going to look at two different stories where Jesus has confrontations with the religious leaders of his day, and the confrontation that he has on both occasions is about food, who he's eating with and what he's eating and the fact that he's eating. Jesus is always getting in trouble about his food. And so with that in mind, what I want to do is we're actually looking at two separate stories, but I want to start at the the second story first, and then we'll go to the first one. So if you have your Bibles, Mark 2. Look at verse 18. Now, John's disciples, John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. Uh, The Pharisees would fast two days a week. They would fast on Mondays and Thursdays, if not more. And it was always related to various hard days that the people of Israel had experienced in the past. So anytime the, the pagan armies had invaded the temple and sacked the temple, that would become a day of fasting. Or anytime that they were brought into exile by Babylon or Assyria, you know, all these places, that became a day of fasting. So their days of fasting were primarily around remembering these really painful events. John's disciples, on the other hand, would fast based on repentance. So they were saying, God, we need your presence back into this world. We, we, we long for you to come and make all things new, so we're going to fast and repent. So their fasting was more based on repentance. And so what's happening here is interesting uh, because Jesus and his disciples are doing something very different. 
Let's look at it again. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is actually hosting a wedding feast. Jesus is hosting a wedding feast. Think about this. Uh, The Pharisees fast. John's disciples fast. Jesus and his disciples feast. Why is that? There's a big chasm between the two different behaviors between the Pharisees and Jesus. They're fasting, and Jesus is constantly feasting. Now, to understand why, it's interesting to really dig into Jesus's response. He uses this analogy about himself and his people, and he says, I'm the bridegroom, or we would say groom in our culture today. He's saying, I'm the groom, and I've arrived as the groom, and you, my people, my disciples, they're, they're a part of the wedding party, right? So this is the analogy that Jesus gives, and it's loaded with significance, but to understand it, we have to kind of rewind a little bit and zoom out and look at the whole story of Scripture to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage. You could really summarize the entire Bible as the tale of two different meals. The Bible's a story that starts with a meal in many ways, and it ends with a significant meal. The the way that the Bible starts is God creates humanity, he places them in in the Garden of Eden, and it's surrounded by food, trees that are bearing fruit, and he's saying, hey, I want you to be my people in my place, and I want you to feast. And so what he's doing is inviting them into this world of yeses with only one no, the no being don't eat of this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trust me and live as my people and enjoy. I've set a table for you. I want you to eat and feast with joy in my presence. But we know that in Genesis 3, they choose to reach out and grab a hold of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing so, what they're saying is, we actually don't want to find identity and significance and meaning and pleasure in you. We think that we can find those things if we circumvent you and go outside of you. So what they do is they take this tree, they eat of the fruit, and by so doing, they bring sin and dysfunction and death and decay into the world. Instead of finding what they thought they were going to find, they actually find shame and sin and guilt, and they're pushed outside of the presence of God. And so from this story on, what God is saying is, hey, I actually long for you to be my people again. I actually long to bring you back into my presence so that you'll be in my place, and I want want to set a table for you to feast. And again and again in the Old Testament, God is saying, one day I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with your sin and I'm going to bring my presence back. And he describes it in two ways. He describes it as a wedding where God is going to kind of bring his people back into marriage with him. And he describes it as a feast. This is really interesting. Over and over in the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel are described as God's bride meant to be in covenant relationship with God, loving God, faithful to God, and yet they're constantly rejecting God, and their sin is described as idolatry and adultery, and they're running to other lovers, lesser lovers, to find what they're looking for, and they never can find it. And what God again and again is saying is, hey, I'm going to pursue you, and I'm going to bring you back as my bride. Here's one from Hosea chapter 2, just kind of hinting at this concept. Here's what God says to his people. 
And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. Now look at this. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. He's saying, I'm going to bring you back, and though you're my wayward bride that's ran after lesser lovers, I'm going to to marry you and bring you into a covenant relationship with me that's marked by faithfulness. So this idea of God doing something in human history, it's described as this wedding between God and people. Another way that he describes it is this feast, this huge banquet. Look at Isaiah 25. I just want to read this to you. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Think about that. God wants to make a feast of rich food and invite humanity to the feast. A feast of well-aged wine, which if you're Baptist, it's Welch's grape juice. Just read that in, right? Of rich food, of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So track the story of scripture. It starts with a meal where everything gets fractured and broken, and in the middle of the story is God saying, I'm going to come one day to throw you a feast and bring my presence back into the world, and it's going to be this wedding between us and me, and I'm going to bring you back to myself. And then here's what's so crazy. The Bible ends with the story with another meal. And it's the polar opposite of the fall. This is a banquet called in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the lamb. And this is where those two ideas get merged together, where God is saying, finally, what I've done is I've ended sin and I've pushed shame out and I've taken this broken world and I've repaired it and I've redeemed it and I've brought you back to myself and I'm setting a table again where you can be my people, my beloved bride feasting at my table. This is the story of scripture. It starts with a meal where the fall happens and then it ends with a meal where Jesus redeems and renews all things. And in the middle of those two stories is the life and ministry of Jesus and it's marked by him constantly eating meals. And that's very significant. In fact, the Gospel of Luke, out of all the Gospel account writers, wants to go above and beyond to talk about the significance of Jesus eating. There's this idea of the Son of Man, which is another name to call Jesus. And there's only three statements in Scripture that say, the Son of Man came to fill in the blank. And one of them is in Luke 7. And listen to what Jesus says about himself. He says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was so constantly around feasts, he was eating and he was drinking so much that he got for himself the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard. Do you know how you get the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard? You eat a lot of food and you drink a lot of wine. And Jesus was not a drunkard, just for the record. He was not a glutton, but he was constantly feasting. And this is significant because something bigger is happening as Jesus sits down to have a meal with people. 
Uh, there's a writer named Tim Chester. He's a pastor from the UK and wrote a book called A Meal with Jesus. And he kind of gives a flyover summary of how significant this was. Just look at this. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. That's another version of what we're about to study in just a minute. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at a home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law while at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than just their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. It's one of my favorite stories where instead of waiting for an invitation, he's like, hey, I'm going to come over to your house today. Luke 22, we've got the account of the Last Supper when Jesus sits down with his disciples for one final meal. And in Luke 24, the risen Jesus, one of the first things that he does is he has a meal with two disciples in Emmaus and then later eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. Here's the point. Uh, Robert Karras said this, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal or he's at a meal or he's coming from a meal. Why? Here's why. When Jesus gets to this story in Mark 2 and they say, why are you not fasting? Here's what Jesus is saying, and it's big and it's huge and it's pulling all back from scripture. He's saying, hey, listen, I am the groom and I've arrived and you are my beloved bride and we've been separated because of your sin, but I'm bringing the presence of God back into the world. I'm coming to deal with your sin. I'm coming to forgive you and not just to forgive you. I'm coming to set a table so that we can sit down and you can once again be my people feasting in my presence. The reason why Jesus kept eating again and again and again is because he's announcing that the kingdom of God is here and he is about to wipe away every tear from every eye. It's a big deal. Jesus is saying, why would you fast now? It's the the wedding. We're partying. We're celebrating. You don't fast on your wedding day. I attended a wedding last night for a friend, and I was thinking about this passage. Like, can you imagine how weird it would be if you had this amazing celebration? And they're like, and to mark it, we're not going to eat any food or have any good drinks. Why would you do that? That's one of the ways that as a culture, we celebrate. Anytime it's a birthday or Christmas or a holiday or you got a day off, what are you going to do? We're going to get with family, and we're going to get with friends, and we're going to throw a meal. And Jesus is saying, I can't fast right now because I'm the groom, and I've come for my bride, and I'm setting a table. The kingdom of God has arrived. It's a big deal. Now, they don't get it, and so Jesus uses this uh, parable, two different parables, to describe what he's doing with his entrance into this world. Look at verse 21. Jesus goes on, and he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, if he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts the new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now that can be a little bit confusing, like probably not many of us are wine experts, but essentially what Jesus is saying is that he's the new wine, and if you think of wine as it ferments, the way they would put it in skins in the first century to keep the wine, those skins would start to stretch as the wine ferments and expands. So if you take new wine and you put it in an old wineskin that had already stretched and it's brittle, then as the wine expands and ferments, it's going to burst open and break. 
Or take, like, if you've ever had a good pair of raw selvage denim and it rips a hole in it and you want to sew a patch on that, then you know you can't take a piece of unshrunk denim and put it on there because it's going to rip it even more. You've got to find something that's already been shrunk down so it doesn't tear. Jesus is saying something like this. Hey, I'm the new wine and I'm the new patch. And you Pharisees, you religious leaders of the day, you can't just modify your structures to fit me in somewhere. I have shown up on the scene, and I'm doing something completely new. I've arrived, and you need to readjust for me. Here's how one uh, theologian said it, James Edwards. The question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two parables is not whether the disciples will make room for Jesus and their already full agendas and lives, The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. So here's the point of the story so far. Jesus is the, he's he's hosting a wedding feast. He's saying, I'm the groom. I've arrived. I'm setting a table. I'm dealing with your sin. I'm coming to bring a whole new world with me. And it's marked by the fact that I keep sitting down and having feast after feast after feast. Now, with that in mind, there's something else I want you to see. And it's even more shocking than the fact that Jesus is arriving to throw a wedding feast. Look at Mark 2, verse 13, the first story. Jesus went out again beside the sea And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. By the way, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, we later learn, is Matthew, the one who wrote uh, the gospel according to Matthew, right? So it's not uncommon for people in Jesus' day to have more than one name. You think of Peter. He was also called Simon. He was also called Cephas. And that's the same with Matthew. He's also known as Levi the son of Alphaeus. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Matthew arose and followed him. Verse 15, and as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So the first thing I wanted you to see was that Jesus is hosting a wedding feast. The second thing I want you to see, I want you to notice the guest list. Who gets invited to be a part of this wedding feast, to sit down at the table of God and enjoy friendship and fellowship and communion with God? Who is it that gets invited? Well, according to Mark 2, it's tax collectors and it's sinners. Now, if you grew up in church, you're at a disadvantage a little bit because there's been some things about tax collectors that you were told that's not entirely the full story. It's more reductionistic. You were told something like, well, tax collectors are the bad guys because they stole too much money. They would hike up the taxes and get rich off of people, which is true to an extent, but it's a very, very narrow understanding of tax collectors. There's a lot more to the story. What happened in Jesus' day is that Rome had occupied the people of Israel. And they allowed Israel to continue to function and have kings, but they were puppet kings underneath the authority of Rome, and they were harshly mistreating the people of Israel. The Roman army was incredibly cruel to the Jewish people and to everybody in Israel. And so you, if you were a Jewish person, you hated Rome. Rome was the enemy. And Rome was, at the time, making war on most of the known world and going into most of the world to kind of fight different battles. And so what do you have to do to fight those battles? Well, you got to raise money. 
And how do you raise money? Well, you get people to pay taxes. So what Rome does is they go and they find Jewish men that want to make a quick buck and are okay with betraying their own people. They hire them, and they say, what we want you to do is basically go into your communities, and if it's border crossings or going into various villages, we want you to tax people money and then give that money to us to fund our Roman military army. And so what was happening is these Jewish men that were tax collectors were raising money, and they were allowed to basically keep anything beyond what they had to give to Rome, and they could keep it and get wealthy for themselves. And by so doing, they were literally betraying their own people. And so think of it this way, like a tax collector in a modern way of thinking is more like a Jew living in Germany during the Nazi regime and betraying the rest of the Jewish community by giving names to the Gestapo saying, hey, here are some other Jewish families that I know. If you want to raid their town and if you want to arrest them and bring them to concentration camps, here's their names. Like that's essentially what was happening as a tax collector. They were getting rich off of betraying their own people. Again, uh, James Edwards says this, tax collectors were obviously despised and hated. Anyone who is familiar with moles and informants and Nazi and communist regimes will have an appreciation for the loathing that first century Jews felt for tax collectors. The Mishnah and the Talmud register scathing judgments of tax collectors, lumping them together with thieves and murderers. A Jew who collected taxes, listen to this, was disqualified as a judge or witness in court, expelled from the synagogue, so not invited to church, and a cause of disgrace to his family. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Tax collectors were tangible reminders of Roman domination. I mean, it's almost worse than leprosy, if you remember the story of the leper who was, was also seen as unclean, but that person didn't choose to have leprosy. It was a condition. Whereas if you were a tax collector, you chose to be one. And yet these are the people that Jesus walks past and he pauses. He looks at this man named Levi, who is a tax collector, and he says, hey, follow me. And then he goes into his house, he sits down with Levi, and guess who else is there? a bunch of other tax collectors that are friends with Levi, and Jesus is very happy to be seen with them. This is bizarre, isn't it? The other category of people that Jesus is eating with, not just tax collectors, but sinners. Now, in our day, we think of sinners being, well, everybody's a sinner. Like, if you've done anything wrong at any point, then you've sinned. But in this culture, to be a sinner meant something very specific. It was describing an obvious way of life outside of the Torah. It was a way of living in rebellion against God. So these were your thieves, your prostitutes, your criminals, people that had a lifestyle that was obviously sinful and wrong were called sinners. And friends, think about this. Jesus is sitting down to dinner with tax collectors and with prostitutes. These are the people that he was associating with. Can you think of anybody that even in our modern culture that you would be uncomfortable to sit down with dinner and have someone take a photo of it? Like, I don't want to be seen with that person. Can you think, like, maybe it's a serial killer? You know, like, not a lot of people are going to want to sit down with Jeffrey Dahmer for dinner, mainly because you might be the dinner, you know? So it's like, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to, I don't want to be seen. There's certain people that we don't want to be seen with. And if that's true of our day, it was even more true of Jesus' day. To sit down with someone at dinner meant something so much more than eating a meal. 
Scott Barchi said this in a book called Table Fellowship. He said, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when, a per- when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Think of the story of the prodigal son. First thing that the father does when the son returns home is what? He throws a feast. And he's saying, hey, I forgive you. I welcome you. I love you. I receive you. I want you in my presence to be not just someone that I've forgiven, but to be a friend, to have intimacy and to have union with. Can you imagine? Jesus wants to be friends with tax collectors and sinners. I feel like if you grew up in church, you've heard that enough for it to not shock you. That should shock you. And it shocks the Pharisees. Look at their response in verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, again, if you grew up in church, you're at a disadvantage because you're like, oh, the Pharisees are the bad guys. But actually, they were not the bad guys. They were the good people. In fact, their name, Pharisee, literally meant set-apart ones or holy ones. These were the people that when Israel was in decline, when they were mixing with pagan nations, when they were changing their behaviors and devolving in their morality, when they were forgetting about God, the Pharisees were, were a sect of Jewish people that rose up and said, hey, enough is enough. God has called us to be separate and different and to look, uh, look attractive to the world. We're going to take the Bible seriously. We're going to live in a way that's honorable. We're going to do what God has called us to do. We're going to be serious about God. These were people that valued spiritual formation at a high degree. They were the people that you want your kids to grow up to be like. Like you want your sons and your daughters to grow up to be like a Pharisee. And out of all of the Jewish sects at the time, uh, the Pharisees was the one that Jesus was most closely aligned with. Think about that. And yet Jesus is saying, hey, friends, at some point, at some point down the road, you've missed the plot line. Because I didn't want you just to be set apart for the sake of being set apart. I didn't want you just to circle the wagons and not have any relationship with people in the world. I wanted you to be set apart for the blessing and the benefit of people in the world. So notice what Jesus says in response to these religious leaders. It's one of the most incredible verses in scripture, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's saying, hey, Pharisees, you don't feel the weight of your sin anymore. You don't feel the weight of your brokenness anymore. And it's not that you're not sinful. It's not that you're not broken. You just don't feel it anymore. And I'm actually, here's the great physician to get around people who are really sick and in need. And so this is why I'm sitting down for a meal with sinners and with tax collectors because they're the ones that need the grace that I came to offer people. Friends, what's really crazy is this whole story in scripture is meant to tell you that Jesus is hosting a wedding feast. And do you know who's invited? People like you and me. And if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, 
but man, the past that I've lived or the shame that, I've, that I carry or the things that I've done that I wish I could take back. Friends, actually, the weight of your shame and the weight of your sin doesn't disqualify you from being invited to this feast. It's really the only thing that qualifies you. You have two qualifications to be invited to sit down at a feast with Jesus. Number one, you must be sinful. And number two, you must be spiritually sick. And this is one of the problems in Oklahoma is that a lot of us don't feel the weight of our sin. We don't feel the weight of our shame. We kind of think that we've mastered the art of wearing the mask and pretending to be a lot better than we are. And so we walk around, you know, we don't feel like we're those people. Friends, we actually are those people. And unless we feel like we're those people, we're not invited into the feast. It's the ones that are broken and overwhelmed and addicted and fragile and have, have done things that they're embarrassed about that Jesus is saying, you you're invited. I'm the groom. I'm throwing a wedding. And I actually want to bring you back into my presence and sit you down at my table. Now, before we close, how does he do this? Does he just like sweep our sin under the rug? He's like, oh, it's no big deal. No, actually, that's not what's happening at all. Mark 2 verse 20 gives us a little bit of a hint and glimpse as to what is actually happening here. Here's what it says. The days will come, Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. This is an out of nowhere verse because he's talking about a wedding feast and then in the middle of it, he's like, the day is gonna come when the the groom is gonna be forcibly removed from the wedding. Like, whoa, whoa, I didn't see that coming. What is he talking about? Here's what Jesus is describing He's foreshadowing his future death on a cross where he's gathered with his people to throw this wedding feast and yet he actually ends up getting uh, wrongfully betrayed, accused of crimes he didn't commit and Jesus hangs on a cross and dies. And what's happening when he does this is he's dying in our place for our sins. Jesus is saying, I'm the groom and I've come to marry my people. I've come to bring my people back into a loving relationship with me. And the way that I'm gonna do that is actually by laying my life down for my bride on a cross, taking her shame upon myself and dying, not sweeping her sin under the rug, but dying for it, receiving the justice of God the Father in their place so that she can go free. The, the, the way that you and I, as followers of Jesus, get to come to this feast and drink deeply of the love and mercy and grace of God is because Jesus on the cross cried out, I thirst. The way that you and I get invited back into the presence of God is because Jesus was cast out of the presence of God on our behalf. This is why Jesus came to call broken, sinful people like us that have no hope to this feast where he wants to love us and he wants to forgive us. So where do we go from here? Well, let me close. Two things that you need to grab a hold of. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's one application to the story. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, there's a different application. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's what's really bizarre. If Jesus came eating and drinking and displaying divine hospitality and kindness to the worst of the worst people, then what makes us think that you and I should be any different in our behavior and who we decide to eat meals with? In fact, one of the biggest applications of this whole story is that if Jesus is going to be a friend of sinners, we should be friends of sinners as well. Because we were once on the outside. We were once far from God. We were once dead in sin. We were once alienated and hostile to God. And yet God brought us near and showed us kindness and showed us mercy. 
And so friends, like, here's the burden that I have for our church. I am very aware of the way that culture's forming us right now. I'm very aware that spiritual formation is a must if we're actually gonna have anything attractive to offer uh, people who are not followers of Jesus. I'm very aware that your phone and the the things that you consume throughout the week are changing your loves and making it disordered for you and living in different ways. So I'm very aware that what we need more now than ever is spiritual formation at its finest. Like we need to be people who are surrounded by the word, shaped by the word, changed by the word. We actually need to be holy. We need to be different. We need to be set apart in all the ways that Jesus is calling us to. But don't forget, that's not at all meant to separate you away from the world where the people who actually need the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus are nowhere to be found in our lifestyle. That is not what you and I are called to. So I want you to think this week, who is that person that you would just describe in your head as really far from God? Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker. Somebody in your life that, you're a little embarrassed to have around your kids because you're not sure what they might say and how the conversation might go? Someone that you would say, I don't want my kids to grow up to look like that person. Who is that person? And once you have their face in your head, that's the person that within the next week or two, you need to invite over to your house and say, hey, I'm cooking an amazing meal. I'd love to have you come and sit at my table. No agenda. You don't have to have all the answers to their questions. You don't have to have all the you know, answers to objections to Christianity. You don't have to have all of Tim Keller read so that you can respond you know, with nuance and clarity. Like You don't have to do any of that. Just cook them a great meal. And if you're like, I don't know how to cook, then spend money and go find a great restaurant that isn't Applebee's and cater that in and say, hey, come over because I'm having a great meal and I want to invite you in. No agenda, just love them and serve them and open up your heart to them because that's what Jesus did with us. And if we can't learn to do that, then what on earth are we actually doing here as the people of God? He showed divine hospitality to the stranger and sinner that should be a cue for us in how we live. Amen? If you're not a follower of Jesus, the only way I can think of, of really inviting you in is to read Isaiah 55. Listen to God's heart for you. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You're saying, God, I've, I've searched for meals, I've searched for satisfaction, I've searched for, searched for pleasure, and now I'm bankrupt. God is saying, come in, come on in. He goes on to say this, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. If you feel like you're on the outside today, God is saying, hey, come on in. I've set a feast and you're invited. Would you stand with me? Father, I pray for my friends and I pray that as we process what it means to be people who come in and sit at your table, not because we were good, but because you were good on our behalf. God, we pray today that you would allow us to enjoy the fruit and the benefits of your death and your resurrection, that we get to sit down and feast with you. And God, we pray for the friends that we have in our life that are far from you. We pray that you would teach us how to host them. 
Teach us how to open up our heart and have divine hospitality, your hospitality on their behalf. God, we pray that you would give us a real invitation to invite a certain person over for dinner just to, for no other agenda than to love them, to care for them. We pray that as we do that, that defenses would drop, that you would teach us how to love and serve the way you did. Thank you for the gift that it is to be your bride as your church, to be loved by by this God that's been so faithful and covenantal in his love. Thank you that there's nothing we could do to undo your covenant. Pray these things in your name, amen.